New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine welcomes a familiar face back into the passenger seat. It's Mark Brody, who we chatted with previously about his book, Making Monte Carlo, A History of Speculation and Spectacle an interview you can find in our archives at historyauthor.com, on our iHeartRadio channel, iTunes, or wherever you're listening now. Today, Mark brings us the tale of a military leader who's almost too big for the word legend. He's Napoleon Bonaparte of France. We meet the Titan not at the peak of his power, but at his low point. Exiled, deposed from the throne and walking among the citizens of a tiny island in the Mediterranean as just one of the guys. But of course, Napoleon was never just one of the guys. He was still scheming about a triumphant return to Paris, doing the things that he felt fit the way he saw himself, in sweeping grand terms. The book is The Invisible Emperor, Napoleon on Elba, From Exile to Escape. Mark Brody is a National Endowment for the Humanities 2017-2018 public scholar and a former lecturer at Stanford, having earned a Ph.D. in Modern European History from the University of Southern California, as well as a Master's in French Studies from our own New York University. You can visit him online at markbrody.com for more on this book and Making Monte Carlo. His last name is spelled B-R-A-U-D-E. Okay, now that we've boarded the ferry to Elba, with the remnants of France's defeated royal court, let's join Mark Brody and go in search of the Invisible Emperor. I'm joined via Skype by Mark Brody, author of The Invisible Emperor, Napoleon on Elba, From Exile to Escape. Welcome back to the History Author Show, Mark. Thanks for having me. Always nice to be talking history with you. I started out when we connected before we started recording by saying 
thanks so much for thinking of me because this is a book that I might not have been aware of if you hadn't let me know. And also thanks for writing it because so many topics are walked over again and again in the same way. For instance, when I talked with David Petruccia recently on his book, TR's Last War, he said, by the time you get to the Great War, the World War I period, he's exhausted you as a biographer. Most people just say, well, his sons went off and he didn't do much. And then he passes away shortly after. You have to keep the book short also. There's practice concerns. And TR has such a full life that he packs into those 60 years that by the time you get to a certain point, you have to cut something out. And the Great War was often what suffered. Napoleon Bonaparte is a charismatic and significant historic figure to the point where it feels a little silly for me to say that. He's the man on the horse, the guy crowning himself emperor. And I think maybe when we read or choose books, we say, well, I know enough about that guy already. I know Napoleon, he's the he's the guy with the hat, the hand and the vest. So it's easy to skip over a book on him. But boy, am I glad I didn't skip over the Invisible Emperor because here he is. He's kind of a has-been at this point in his life. He's not the man on the horse. He's exiled to an island. He's stripped of power and title. He's been brought down from that statue to our level. A guy wandering around the, the streets with us who used to be somebody really important. What drew you to tell the story of this Napoleon who is so small at this point of his life that he is, to invoke your title, invisible? You know, there's this parlor game that historians, biographers sometimes play about who has the most books written about them, what life. Hitler is definitely up there. And Napoleon is certainly in the top five, right? I mean, there's literally tens to hundreds of thousands of books written about this one person. So you're absolutely right. We feel like we know so much about him, and it is really this evergreen subject. And yet I wanted to write something that was completely unique and that would stand apart. And it just so happened that I got drawn into Napoleon on Elba, not because of Napoleon, but actually because of Elba. Hmm. I was never much of a Napoleon fanatic or buff. I just had heard about, you know, in my general learning of French history, that there was this small little episode where here's Napoleon Bonaparte who commands the lives of 70 to 80 million people, and he gets defeated and then goes to Elba. He's there for 10 months. He comes back, and there's Waterloo and all the rest and all of these famous events. And I said, well, wait a second. Let's back up. What about those 10 months? And the answer was, well, nobody really cares about those 10 months because nothing much happens. And that's where I put my little historian's hat on. I said, well, wait a second. Something always happens. Maybe we haven't looked at it that closely because it doesn't seem very obvious as a story, but certainly something happened. And, and I got drawn in by that. And it turned out I was totally, totally fascinated by everything that happened on Elba, precisely because it was, as you said, the opposite of the Napoleon we know. It's somebody not at the height of his powers, but really at a low point. And what that offered me was the chance to see Napoleon from a completely different perspective because the people at the time were seeing him from a completely different perspective. He's somebody who, of course, this world-straddling, charismatic figure, as you said, who's gone everywhere and, and done so much, and yet there's not a lot of intimacy in his life. There's not a lot of people getting close to him, especially during the height of his career. Strangely enough, nobody has really close access to him. Once he gets to Elba, and he goes into exile, there are about, I think, 40 people in his retinue or something like that 
dozens, you know, just a few dozens of people close to him. And really his inner circle is, is really a handful of people. And those people write about what they see. They write about the most minute details, what he said, where he went, what Elba was like. And that to me was like gold. That was archival treasure. I make the argument in the book, Napoleon on Elba is seen by more people at a closer distance than at any other point in his life. And that to me alone warrants the investigation. It just so happened, I think, that it turned into a really great story. What actually happens on Elba is totally, to me, fascinating, which is why I stuck with the project. There's that line that David McCullough says about John Adams before writing his Pulitzer Prize winning biography, where he says, I couldn't just write after John Adams left the White House that for 20 years he went back to Massachusetts and nothing really happened, which was the conventional wisdom at the time. And it turned out, well, yes, things did happen because John Adams is a fascinating guy. And Napoleon, like these other figures that you mentioned that people just can't stop writing about even after 200 plus years, seeing him do things that maybe seem like nothing is still more interesting than most of us really doing something. You know, our most exciting day is not going to be as interesting as seeing a person who is removed from this great power from the very apex of not just his nation, not just even Europe, but the world in the great scope of history. Here's a guy who has himself reduced to just walking the street, who doesn't have the crown anymore. And so I think that that is going to spark a good historian like yourself to say, well, wait a minute, it can't be that nothing happened just because everyone says nothing happened. And just because it's hard to get to Elba and I, and nobody really went there and looked into all this and decided to study it. He has things that are going on because he's an interesting guy. He's dealing with the mundane. You kind of can say, well, wait a minute. Now I can get to know the real guy because so much of his life built up from being a young person is what he wanted history to remember about him and creating this persona. So now we can see what he's like when he's stripped of all that. And I think that it's incredible that here in The Invisible Emperor is the first time that we can pick this up. It seems like people would be drawn to that. And yet it's the opposite because people have always looked at those big set pieces in his life. And so this gets overlooked. Exactly. It's a question of value, I guess. You put a value on the events in a life. Some are dramatic and some are mundane. And the question is, well, wait a second. What if you actually flip that around? It's not better or worse. But from my point of view, just where I'm actually interested, I'm much more interested in the fact that, say, Napoleon cheated at cards when playing against his mother in his little parlor in Elba, which he did. That to me is way more interesting than how he arranged his cannons at Waterloo, which is not to say I discount that information or I don't think it's important historically. It's just, to me, not as interesting. That to me is kind of almost mundane, which is, you know, I don't want to upset people who are into that kind of history because it's, it's totally fascinating in its own way as well. But it's just, that's where my interest as a researcher lie. That's the detective work that I can do that I feel like no one else is going to be immediately looking in that direction. And that's why I like to kind of carve in my own little niche there. And I think McCullough is a great example of somebody who does that, actually does both really well. He can give you the cannons and he can give you the cheating at cards. He's an excellent observer of detail. And I think that's why we would read McCullough's biographies, for instance, is there isn't an innate interest in somebody like a John Adams, but you're not dying necessarily to read about John Adams. It's just a life that he this expert author has presented to you in great detail. There's enough there for you to connect. 
And I think that's what I was trying to do with this book about Napoleon was, here's somebody whose life couldn't be more different than my own, whose time couldn't be more different than my own. And yet he's got all of these universal struggles that we can now see from this very close perspective. He kind of is, has uh, some issues with his wife. He misses his child. His mother is, he loves his mother, but his mother is driving him crazy. He's got money problems. You know, there's all these things. Well, I'm not saying I have all of those issues right this second in my life, but those are kind of universal struggles. And I think that's fascinating to be able to make that connection across time and space, and especially with somebody as with as big a personality as, as a Napoleon Bonaparte. You mention all of that about him. And as you are, I'm thinking the same thing. My ears perk up when I hear he's cheating at cards. <laughs> I wonder if maybe it's something that we can embrace at this point because it has been 200 years and everybody looks at historical figures a little differently. If you looked at some of these presidents like John Adams, you see them go through ebbs and flows. You see Theodore Roosevelt go from being this dashing hero to being the unhinged, laughable farce of a character that we see in Arsenic and Old Lace, charging up stairs and screaming stuff that diminishes him. He wasn't that popular then. He went down and people looked at him as a farce, and then he rebounds later in the in the 20th century to where now today everybody wants to claim a piece of him, no matter what. He's, he's transcended now, and I feel maybe that's what we look at now. We can go back to somebody like Napoleon in our time, and we can say, well, the things that I find interesting are not maybe those battles because they are so distant in our memory. And as important as they are, it's the things that we can relate to. We can't relate to those battles because we live in a different world. The map of Europe is completely different. And things like his origin and how he feels about that. In fact, you write, no epithet apparently riled him so much as being called the Corsican. You know, when I read that in The Invisible Emperor, I make note of it and I say, okay, this guy had a humble origin. He had he was a, a foreigner in France, basically in his early life, and that that draws me in. Now that's something that I can pick up and I can chew on as someone who likes to read history and say, how did this fuel his drive, his sense of destiny? That I can relate to now because I know something about his low points. I can understand what drove him. What is it about him that Corsican upbringing, that chip on his shoulder, that makes this time in Elba that you cover in the Invisible Emperor? so key in the way that he does push that sense of destiny, that he does try to find a way back to power at a time most deposed leaders would probably just sit and sulk and just give it up and maybe write their memoir. When I came across this little episode in history, it almost sounded too good to be true because it, from a writer's perspective, it is the perfect three-act drama. You, know, you have the person who's up high, he gets brought low, and then he comes back. George Saunders, the novelist, has this great line. People say, well, how do you write a story? He says, I find a guy, I put him up a tree, and then I throw rocks at him, and then I bring him down the tree. <laughs> and I think that's kind of what happens in real life. And you know, I didn't have to make anything up with Napoleon. Is Here's somebody who's at the height of his powers and is taken to a place that's it's about the size of Staten Island. It's not a big island. There's 12,000 people there. And any rational person in that situation. You're on a Tuscan island. You're sort of taken care of in terms of he's fairly, he's comfortable, right? There's no reason for him to leave. He should just retire. Any other sane person would retire and just, he loved to read. He got to ride his horses. He had family nearby. Just chill out, you know, <laughs> enjoy the sun, not Napoleon. And that to me is, that's the spark of the question. Just as you said, well, what is it? 
And I think that's what the book tries to do is try. I don't psychoanalyze Napoleon. I don't, and I don't have a particular ax to grind for or against. I just try to treat him as a human being based on the evidence I have and try to unravel that mystery. Why do this totally insane thing, which is to <laughs> leave the relative safety of Elba to go and wage war in Europe when you, anyone will be able to tell you that's going to end in disaster. And all the people around him are saying, don't do this. It's going to end in disaster. So the question is that, what drove him? And the second question, which again, I don't necessarily want to tease out every single answer to here is why did so many people go along with it? What was the collective irrationality that allowed him to succeed for a while in this crazy escape plan? I guess I should add here, there's maybe a spoiler alert at the beginning. Napoleon leaves the island, right? That's that's kind of... <laughs> it's in the subhead, so... <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> escape, right? Yeah. That's a good point. Very good point. So, uh, yeah, I guess you know that going in. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned a couple of things there that I did want to touch on, and I have no problem with people teasing them. And I hope that everyone who listens will will understand that because the idea is to share a great book with you and get you to pick it up because I'm passionate about it. Obviously, the author is passionate about it. And so that was a line that I plucked out of The Invisible Emperor, exactly what you just talked about. You ask and answer a question. You write, why did he leave the comforts of Elba to make war? Because he thought that it was something Napoleon ought to be seen to do. That was something so telling about him that that sketches the guy for you right there if that was fiction you mentioned being a playwright or writing something that's a story in a novel that's it right there he's driven he thinks that this is the role that i have i've built it for myself so i'm, I'm not flushing it down the toilet by being a, a farmer on this little island or a fisherman for the rest of my life he can't bear to live that as i looked at that as i read that line about him doing things that he felt napoleon ought to do this persona he'd created for himself did you ever feel him tugging at your elbow a little bit metaphorically and almost trying to edit you from beyond the grave and say, well, play down that part, but really build up this part and, and add in this for my legend? Because he's somebody very conscious of his place in history and how he'd be remembered. How is that to write a book about a figure like that who was very conscious of almost winking at or nagging or talking to historians that would write about him later and try to get the real story. So you are a reliable narrator, even though Napoleon might've sometimes shaded his own legend. So there's a lot there in that question, which is great. Let's start with the, that sentence. Uh, I'll paraphrase myself because I don't have the book in front of me, but you know, <laughs> why did Napoleon do what he did? Because it was what Napoleon ought to be seen to do. Which, by the way, that was I had to go back to my basic grammar there and figure out, am I getting all these tenses right? Yeah. The key word there is seen. I have to leave this island because that's what Napoleon, if you were watching him, would be seen to do. That's the performance I have to give as Napoleon. Not what do I want as a human being. What does the character, this great figure of Napoleon that I have created for all of these people, what does he need to do? I think there's that disconnect between him as a person and him as a character. He sees it. He's created himself. He's created his own myth, and that's the root of his popularity. That's the root of his power. And so he has to act according to that myth. And it's all about visual. It's all about the visual. He has to leave in the night on these boats, make this daring escape, and the improbable return of this person that you thought, you know, the phoenix rising to the ashes. It's myth, right? It's fantasy. And that's also ties in with my title of the Invisible Emperor. The point of exile 
point of sending somebody away is to render them invisible. We don't want to see you. You're dangerous. We're going to keep you out of sight and preferably out of mind. My counter argument to that is actually Napoleon and Elba is seen in, in a whole new light because there's people who get up close to him. People come from the mainland. He's almost like a tourist attraction. I mean, it's totally bizarre, but anybody can kind of walk up to the little villa there if they get to Elba and say, can I see Napoleon? And nine times out of 10, I'm not making this up. They get to have coffee with Napoleon. It happens. Wow. And they write books about it, which I get to read and then nerd out over. But it, it really did happen. <laughs> so that's my argument of like, you know, you try to make him invisible. He actually is powerful in a new way because he's out of sight. And that means legend. That means rumor. That means people are talking about him. What's he up to over there? We don't see him every day. He's not here screwing up in front of us. He's out there. What, well, maybe he's doing something brilliant. Maybe he's planning his revenge. Maybe he's going to save us all. You know, all of those things that happen out of sight. I think he harnesses that power of invisibility, which is the title. The second part of your question was, now that I'm here 200 and some years later, and there's this incredible fireball of a personality that I'm writing about, is he driving the train or am I? Uh, I'm driving the train. You know, that's kind of the great <laughs> ego thrill of being the historian is I get to confront Mr. Napoleon Bonaparte and say, hey, you know, you just hang back here. I'm, I'm going to drive the train. This is, uh, I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to be fair to you. I'm going to listen to what you have to say and what everyone has to say about you and try and be measured. And obviously I can't make anything up, as we said, but this is my narrative and we're going to we're going to work through this together. Let's say that. Let's Let's kind of have a compromise, maybe I should say. I'm not in charge. He's not in charge. We're trying to do it together. But I will say this, which is that when you spend the better part of a day thinking and writing about Napoleon Bonaparte, it certainly permeates into how you approach life, for better or for worse. I felt energized. I guess I'll say that. I had a friend, a writer friend who read the book, and he said, you know, if I had like a tenth of the energy of Napoleon that Napoleon does in your book, I would be the author of 20 books by now. And that was contagious. The, I think it's an energetic story that he does a lot. He goes, even on this little island, he's just constantly moving. He's constantly busy. So if we can take the best of this person, he certainly did some terrible things. But as a personality, as a presence, I actually found that kind of, I think that that sort of trickled down into my day-to-day -day life. I was like, well, Napoleon did X, Y, Z. I think I can, you know, get off my butt and go to the dentist today and <laughs> yeah. file my taxes and, you know, all the rest. So that was nice. And hopefully, you know, as you read it, that also will happen to you. Maybe it's a, maybe this is a self-help book here, yeah. masquerading as a history. We didn't get energized. I don't know. Yeah, I did think that as I was reading it, but I, I often do that with history. So I didn't fold it into a question, but I thought it as I read it, I said, that's, an inspiration when you read some of these things, but to come back from this very bottom and to deal with it the way that he deals with it, anytime you read history, hopefully you'll get inspired, even if it's inspired in a reverse way by reading something negative about, for instance, books that are about the Holocaust or how people will do nothing in a, in a great genocide that occurs. You want to be inspired to either share the story or I've often said here on the show, ask the authors to give us some advice. What do you think we should do when our moment comes? What should we do? What would you like to see us take from it? And we can take things from this never give up of Napoleon, whereas most of us haven't spent a fraction of the time that you have living with him. In fact, I thought about it a little bit as we were going to talk about the Invisible Emperor, and I realized the most vivid images that I have when I hear the name Napoleon are probably, aside from the pastry, 
those farcical images like the Black Adder or Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is the 1956 Bugs Bunny short, Napoleon Bunny Part. <laughs> and he goes up against Napoleon and they cast Napoleon as, as a farce and all of those things. He's one of those people that's a caricature, like with Theodore Roosevelt. Put on those pince-nez, put on the, the big teeth, and that's it. You're him. Get the mustache. In fact, there's something like, again, David Pietrucci was telling me at McSorley's Old Ale House in the city a couple of weeks ago about how many Theodore Roosevelt impersonators there are across the country that do impressions of TR. And it's a staggering number. It's like 30 of them or 60. It's some huge number that on and off do it. It's easy. You put on the hat here, you're Napoleon, put the hand in the vest, the uniform if you're a man of a certain stature, and people say, ah, that's Napoleon. Just like the little mustache for Hitler. People don't think Charlie Chaplin, they think Hitler. And he's just one of those guys that then you say, wait a minute, if I've made you into a caricature, let's try and get him back out of history, which you do here in The Invisible Emperor. You give him back to us by going and tracing his footsteps. And footsteps is something I definitely wanted to ask you about because we talked about your trip when you wrote Making Monte Carlo, and I gave you a little bit of a hard time, like, oh, gosh, you, you had to really suffer. You stayed in Nice, I believe, for a while, right, and got to visit these places. So the same thing here. Did you go to Elba? I know it's not easy to get there in Napoleon's time, but were you able to go there this time and spend uh, as much time as you would have liked tracing Napoleon's footsteps and getting an idea of what would be his average day among the people? Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of – it is it is a little bit of it. Uh, there is a silly side to this of these last two books, you know, one set, one is Monaco and one is Elba. These are not bad places to be doing yeah. research. And so maybe there's something driving those particular projects of why, why I'm choosing them. I, I, I certainly, my wife and I lived in Elba for for a summer, which was which was not bad, uh, wow. especially when you had, had a reason to be there. And and it's it's, I have to just say this as a kind of general thing for anybody listening get to Elba. Elba is beautiful wow. and totally untapped. There's a lot of Italian tourists who go and actually a lot of Germans. But uh, I was there the whole summer and I wasn't in the main town, but I was in this lovely little seaside town of called Porto Azzurro. And I heard no English spoken. So it's not overrun and it's gorgeous. It's The, the beaches are wonderful. So anyway, that's my little spiel for Elba. The point being, yes, I, I had to get there to, there was a legitimate reason to be there, of course, because everything happened in this historical moment on a very small stage. It's mostly in the town of Portofarrio, which is the capital, not a big place. The, his villa is really close to everybody else in the town. There's the little uh, harbor where he comes in. It's, it's all happening there. So I had to walk there and see it and get the scale of it. And it, it really did inform the book because I said, well, you know, one of the big revelations was, wow, here's this guy. It's Napoleon Bonaparte. He's literally a stone's throw away from the neighbors, you know, who are fishmongers and, you know, somebody running the equivalent of McSorley's Ale House <laughs> in Elba. I, I write something like he can hear the clinking of their dishes and smell their fish frying. He really can. I don't know that until I go to Elba and do that kind of work, which isn't hard work, as I said, but it's it's necessary. The difference here, if we're getting into the, if, if it's okay to start talking about the research, because I know that's something you're always interested in. We had great talk about that uh, with Monte Carlo. What was lovely about the archival research here was, as I said earlier, there are so many people getting close to him and writing about it. I gave the example of a British tourist comes and gets to have coffee with Napoleon. He writes a whole book <laughs> about that single cup of coffee. And there are, I would say, a dozen of those 
similar kinds of situations where somebody spends a day or two on Elba and writes in great detail, which is which was so useful to me. The other thing I had where there is a, an officer named Neil Campbell, as you know from reading the book, who has a very big role in this history. He's the sort of unofficial warden of Elba. He's the guy who's in charge of kind of overseeing this exile. He writes a diary, very, very detailed. That was archival gold. And then there's a guy, uh, and I'll wrap up here on the, on the research, a guy called uh, Pons de Leroux, who runs the, runs the mines on Elba, and that's the main industry. He writes a memoir about his time with Napoleon, he actually writes like two or three different versions as he revises it over his years. He's constantly wrestling with the story. But they have insights that in all of this huge corpus of Napoleonica that's out there, all of the hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of books, these are very special pieces to the puzzle. These are people who have seen him from a totally unique standpoint in a totally unique place at a totally unique time. And that was the kind of thing that uh, really inspired the research and the writing was to find these this treasure that was really hidden in plain sight. And even him speaking to people, being willing to be seen, tells us something about him. I keep going back to the idea that nothing happened. And I, I feel a little bit bad saying, it, which is why I hesitate, because I don't want to put anybody down. We all have those things where we think, ah, well, nothing happened. Then you pick up a book like The Invisible Emperor and you say, wow, things did happen. And it's just a reminder to always keep your mind open about it. Don't be so sure you know what happened in those those 10 months of his life and just skip over them to get back to the action. We don't know always the details of what happened. And for this, I think it also doesn't stick in our minds in a way, because for me, as I'm reading it and now listening to you say exile actually makes him more powerful, more an object of thought. He's not out of the French mind of the French people. He's he's still very much present. And so I'm reading The Invisible Emperor. And as I do, I try to fold in some of these pop culture things that are a part of our programming nowadays, looking back, as I said, 200 years and having our own perspectives. And I thought of the question that people ask of the James Bond villains. If you have Bond, you know, why don't you just kill him? Don't drop spiders on him. Don't do this whole crazy thing with lasers. Don't lock him in a room with the water rising and think, oh, sure, he's going to die. You know, just put a bullet in the guy and get, get, it, get it over with. And certainly don't tell him your whole plan. Don't give him any, don't give him any route to turn things around. And then I thought, to actual history, here's France in the early 1800s, and they're certainly not squeamish or shy about using the guillotine. So what is it about Elba, and this is a fascinating part of the Invisible Emperor, the way that they looked at the island itself, what is it about Elba that they feel sending Napoleon there is the next best thing, if not just as good as chopping off his head? What, what was the draw of sending him into exile rather than sending him to his grave? Okay, so I got to ask you a question before I answer your question. Okay. Your your listeners may remember when we talked about Monte Carlo that we got into a bit of a talk about James Bond because, hey, James Bond and Monte Carlo, that goes hand in hand. Sure. Here we are talking about Napoleon in 1814, <laughs> and you have somehow managed to sneak in a Bond <laughs> reference. So I have to ask, is it, is it safe to say that you're a big Bond fan? <laughs> Actually, no, but this is just the synergy with it. Actually, <laughs> I was thinking of Saturday Night Live and the bit that they did where they had they had a panel, 
I don't remember the actress, but it was during that 80s period. And they have all the villains there and they say, you were, have all been <laughs> one step away from total global domination and your plans have been ruined by Bond. Right. And that's one of the things that they say, you know, if you have him, my best advice is just kill him. Right. You know, and don't tell him your plan. I know you're proud of it. It's a really great plan for world domination. It's natural you'd want to you know, tell him all your exposition, but don't do it. Right. Just kill him. If you don't need the laser. <laughs> if you're close enough to drop a spider on him, you're close enough to just shoot him. Exactly. So that's actually what I <laughs> This is exactly, and by the way, this is something that people ask me a lot: is well, why didn't they just kill him? He's wreaked this tremendous destruction at the cause of so much human misery and so many lost lives and burnt villages and horror. Why send him a day's sail away from the mainland and think that that's going to stop Napoleon Bonaparte? The first reason, from my research and knowledge of of the time, that my first answer is it was just bad manners. And I mean that kind of seriously. This is actually part of the fun of reading about this time, for, for better or for worse, 200 years ago. You know, I wouldn't want to live then, but it, it is quite refreshing to see how important manners and decorum were to the society. There was just things you did and things you, you didn't do. And, you know, rules of engagement. War was fought a certain way. Victory was won a certain way and defeat was endured a certain way. And I think that these people who are the leaders of the, the nations and empires are people who have seen each other across a table. Sometimes they're related by blood. Sometimes they're linked by marriage. They're cousins. Napoleon calls them cousins. He calls the czar and all the rest his cousins. And I think that there's a, there's a sort of sense of, well, this isn't what we do to family. You know, yes, we, we have to fight him. Yes, we have to defeat him. But a sovereign is still a sovereign and we have to treat him as such. So that's one part. And let me also just add, by the way, that that all th goes out the window when Napoleon then leaves, his, escapes his exile. They say, well, now you've broken off the, you know, we, we, we played by the rules, you did not, and now you're just an outlaw. They actually call him an outlaw so that anybody can just kill him without reprisal. They say that he's no longer Napoleon Bonar, he's just a scoundrel and outside of the law. But sorry, that's getting ahead of myself. The second part of why they don't execute him when they have him is... As you said, they are pretty familiar with the guillotine there in France. The revolution is, is in living memory. And I think that these sovereigns say, well, maybe we don't want to set the example that killing an emperor is the way we solve our problems just right at this moment. Let's see if we can avoid another head rolling. Because I think there is a sense of, well, who knows you know, if, if I'm going to be next. Let's maintain some decorum. In retrospect, this is a great part about one of the many great joys of history is you know, you get to come, you get to look at this in hindsight and say, it's so bizarre to us that you would think that way, that you would have a Napoleon Bonaparte, you know, a few miles from the coast and not think he was going to escape. And you also get to then immerse yourself in this world and understand why they did think that way. There was a very logical reason. They weren't being crazy. To them, it made sense. And if I can just add one last thing about this, and this gets to part of my fascination with Elba itself is... There's something really cool about islands. There's something very special about this little piece of land that's surrounded by water and how people at that time thought about islands. There's a reason why so many exiles happen on islands. There's something about water. So even though Napoleon is only a few miles from the coast, I think it's something like eight miles, Elba, don't quote me on that, that feels like a tremendous distance mentally to the average European. Because water is seen as this great boundary between almost order and chaos. Once you get out into the ocean, it's a whole different ballgame. 
So there is a kind of sense, a very rational sense of this is the right thing. We send him to this island. He's in another world. He's not going to bother us. He's on Elba. We're on the mainland and we're fine. And kind of expect him to keep his word and yeah. respect that too and stay there, which Correct. he doesn't do. But it makes me think of vampires. That's one of the things, right? They can't cross water. Hmm. This almost mystical idea that he, oh, he won't because we're putting him on an island. He'll be fine. That's all we'll do. You know, it's kind of like locking up the A team in a closet. <laughs> They're always going to find a way to make an armored personnel carrier on the fly and take those nail guns and things. And so similar to, to James Bond in that sense, where here's somebody who they don't expect him to be a big hero. And I think from reading the Invisible Emperor that that's something that Napoleon would have liked to be in the company of great titanic heroes even though they're fictional because that's the image you wanted and that gets right back to your quote there that this is something he thought he should be seen to be done or else everything that had come before i guess would have just been out the window because people would say look at this he dies a an old man that slips on a fish down at the dock and <laughs> goes in the water and he he did not want that that was not the story that he was writing he, he actually tries his hand at writing a novel and then i look at this and i say He's writing a story with his life. He doesn't know what the end's going to be, and that's the hardest part sometimes of writing a book. But he's going to make sure that he makes it a good story no matter what and see what destiny has in store for him. That's exactly right. That idea of writing the story of your life is central to him. And, and I think also getting back to this point of what connects us to this grand character whose life is so different from ours is Maybe we all try to do that. Maybe we all have a sort of narrative to our life that's going to go a certain way. It means a certain thing. There are certain patterns we fall into and certain things we want to aspire to. And that's not how the world works, right? The world is chaotic. Things happen. Big changes come. You know, you're brought high, you're brought low. People get sick. You know, all those kinds of crazy things that, that happen to us throw wrenches into our stories. I keep saying, you know, why I got drawn into this when I'm not really a Napoleon guy to begin with was that human story of why do we do the things we do? Why do we strive for this kind of certain story of our life and how do we react when that story doesn't actually go the way we planned? And here's somebody who's really wrestling with that on a huge stage in a, in a sense, in a very dramatic way. You're enjoying my conversation with Mark Brody, author of The Invisible Emperor. Napoleon on Elba, From Exile to Escape. You can visit our guest online at markbrody.com. That last name is spelled B-R-A-U-D-E, and it's Mark with a K. The National Book Review writes of the Invisible Emperor, quote, Brody renders Napoleon Bonaparte's 10-month exile on the tiny Mediterranean island of Elba and his brief return to power in 1815 in short, punchy chapters that read like an exciting novel or an episode of Prison Break, unquote. There you go. There's a pop culture reference that didn't come from me that comes right here from the National Book Review. And that's because there are these high concepts, as they're called in fiction. He, he is writing that story and he is building set pieces for himself whenever he can. Your first book, Making Monte Carlo, grew out of your thesis. And yet I enjoyed the book. I picked it up and I was happy to, as the National Book Review notes about this book, it was exciting. It did read like a novel. It didn't read like something that was an academic tome, which isn't what you're going for. And yet you have a PhD in modern European history. You have a master's in French studies. So how do you go about approaching these subjects with 
the eyes of a reader, without the eyes of an academic, without stripping everything away and making it just a lot of historical jargon that's for other people that are in academia. How do you go about earning a review like that from the National Book Review, where they liken it so favorably to reading something as enjoyable as a novel? Well, that's really nice of you to bring up that review. And I love that uh, reference to Prison Break. I'm a big fan of the jailbreak genre, maybe a bit esoteric, but there's this movie Down by Law, Jim Jarmusch. Hmm. It's got Roberto Benigni in it and Tom Waits. It's, it's a jailbreak story. And it's my favorite movie of all time. What's the other one? Great Escape, right? The World War. Yeah, Great Escape. That's a great one. There's something about that genre. So yes, this is this Elba story is a jailbreak story in a way. Here's a guy on an island. He escapes the island. Very simple jailbreak plot. Now, why I'm bringing up genre is because that is kind of the answer to, to your question, which is, I think, in those sort of genres. Monte Carlo, to me, I was interested in the subject. I had a question. Why? How did Monaco come to be? This is the first casino resort. How did that happen in this random place? It fit into, I realized, a rags to riches story, which is why I wrote the book, because I realized here's a good story. Same thing with this invisible emperor is my question was, hey, what happened when Napoleon got sent to this crazy island? That sounds weird. <laughs> Let me find out about that. And it so happened that it fit into a really great genre of which doesn't mean I overdetermine the facts. It just means I can think that way. I think I know that I have a beginning, a middle, and end, and an established trope in which to to write it. And I think so it's not necessarily that I abandon the mind of the academic and go into the mind of the novelist. It's kind of I'm trying to do both. I, I have my research skills that I developed through my training and I'm I'm very proud of and, and that's a lot of fun for me to go in and dig in the archives like a little archive rat and find all the good stuff. And I'm trying to be objective and I'm trying to be cynical when I look at the archives and try and do all the things that I've been trained to do that way to take all this information and and make sense of it. And then I do think, as you said, like a reader, what's the story here? And we all, we like to communicate. There are certain stories that 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 work because they 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 tell us something very fundamental about the human experience. And that jailbreak one is a certain story that gets repeated again and again. What is it like to feel like you you are powerless and then to suddenly, you know, escape that feeling? You can extend that to all sorts of different situations in life. And the other thing I guess is when you're dealing with history, no matter who you are, whether you're trying to make a scholarly argument, you're trying to give a lecture to undergrads, you're trying to write a book, it's always about people and places. I mean, it takes place at a certain time in a certain place, this event, and it involves human beings. And so that means there's inherently a story to be told, no matter what. Whether it's a gripping one or not, I guess, depends on if you get lucky with the material. But there's always a person in a place. And I think those things, if, if you can find, locate that in a way that is universal, you've got yourself a project that's worth pursuing. Makes me think of Louis Rukeyser on Wall Street Week. He read a letter one week from a lady and she said to him, I have to apologize to you because I watch you every Friday. I don't invest on Wall Street. I know nothing about money, but I just find you really <laughs> funny and I enjoy watching your show. And he said, Madam, I'm, I'm really troubled by your letter and I expect you to be watching every week and be really miserable and serious. And that, and that was the whole thing and it made him a, a phenomenon on PBS. Like the guy was able to make jokes and he was able to make the Wall Street things enjoyable. It didn't have to be dry and boring. And that was the the thing here. And with any good book, you you don't have to go at it and think, 
well, if I'm getting a laugh from somebody, then that's bad because I shouldn't be because Napoleon did do terrible things or because then they're not taking it seriously. You can laugh at something like him cheating at cards. That's going to stick in people's minds. And if that's the little bit of sweet that gets you to read through some of the actual history and learn what we want to learn, what we can, the serious side of us can learn about a Napoleon, then why not? Why not be able to have a smile on our face? We we don't want to have a furrowed brow when we're reading a book, I feel. Yeah, and I mean, it is funny, right? It's a comical setup, right? I didn't have to make it up. It's totally funny to me that somebody who's the most powerful person in the world gets sent to an island of 12,000. That inherently is a silly situation, and it really happened. He's got a bit of a sense of humor. He does some weird stuff. He's a bit of a prankster. He's certainly a different personality to follow around, which is going to make it interesting. But it also gets to this point of stories themselves are so important to the Napoleonic personality, the Napoleonic legend, which is why I think he still resonates today and why I think it's of interest to people who might not necessarily think they want to read a book about Napoleon, is that if you like stories, if you see the world through stories like I do, this is a really great example of somebody who who also does that and capitalizes on that and sees the value in that in an important way. As we kind of talked earlier, he crafts a certain story of Napoleon, and that's the whole key to his power. And he's then recrafting that story when he's on Elba. So it's kind of meta, I guess, in that there are stories within the story I'm telling. There's a jailbreak story, as I said, and we can follow that. But there's also the story of Napoleon, of his life, of his legend that he's also crafting alongside my own. As I'm writing the story of what happens on Elba, you're also kind of following Napoleon writing his own version of events, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I want to talk a minute about that whole jailbreak idea, because here you're drawn to it with Napoleon. And I'm going to be interviewing somebody, Neil Bascom, who I interviewed about his book, The Winter Fortress, about the Nazi heavy water plant in Norway. He wrote a book called The Escape Artists, a band of daredevil pilots and the greatest prison break of the Great War, which inspired all those movies and, and those takes on them. In fact, the fellows here that escape and get back to Britain, they create a school to talk to people, POWs, to teach the next generation for the next war how to escape. So talk about being a continuing theme in human history. There is something about that. Even Winston Churchill, when he's imprisoned there by the Boers, it makes such an impression on him that during the Second World War, he makes sure that POWs are giving reading material and that their lot is a little bit softer. This is another idea of that Victorian era that follows the Napoleonic era that also influences him to be honorable to your defeated foes. And it's very cool that Napoleon, who's going to write his own stories, decides, I'm going to also rewrite the rules that apply to my stories. And if you say I can't leave this island, well, I'm right here. I could just do it. You know, it's, it's, So I, I like that. I like that I was smiling. I mentioned that a couple of times. I liked that when I looked at him, I saw why it wasn't as easy as throwing him off the throne to keep this dynamic figure cooped up. You, know, you watch sometimes a cat with a mouse, right? And Napoleon was always going to be the cat. He wasn't going to be the, he wasn't going to be under a paw for long and just lay there and play dead. He insisted on having a role. He insisted that his name was going to be written in history. That brings me briefly to just touch upon how hard it was to replace him because you mentioned how people were still pining for him after. It's one thing to get rid of a leader. It's another thing to reconstruct a piece. So what are the challenges that France faces when they're trying to fill his shoes and how closely is he able to follow those events? Because you mentioned how isolated Elba is. Is he able to get news in a timely fashion? What's his 
lot like there when he's trying to figure out a way he can get back. So let's start with what's what's his lot on Alba, because I think that's also something we, we haven't really touched on, interestingly enough. We've kind of talked about the beginning of the book and the end of the book. He gets exiled and then he escapes. The actual meat of the book is what does he actually do on this island? What's his life like? And that, uh, if we can bring it back to Great Escape, those are my favorite moments in that movie. Like there's the, right, they make moonshine or something like that. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah. They make some some booze out of potatoes. Yeah, you got to right? still. Right. I remember <laughs> that so much more about the movie than actually how they escaped you know those moments to me were gold and, and and that's kind of where i was with napoleon on elba you've raised a question how did he hear about what's going on on the mainland those kinds of things to me were, were really interesting how does news flow to him he's kind of getting certain versions from the people who are close to him who are editing things out he's not always totally aware and and what do you do with that sort of disconnect between what's really happening and what you hear there's also the question of he's got all this energy and this place that is in a sense a clean slate for him an empty territory not to discount the lives that were happening there but for napoleon it's a totally new uh, world for him so he goes about reinventing elba you know training an army training a navy construction sites building his own several houses all of those things were quite were quite interesting to me so while that's going on there is as you said this the second narrative it comes in and out about what's happening in france and your question is, you know, how do you replace Napoleon? What's the struggle there? And I think, again, without giving too much away, it comes back to this question and this overarching theme of story. France brings back an old Bourbon monarch, Louis XVIII. He comes to rule in a sort of compromised dynastic setup where he's got to listen to people and he's got to listen to advisors. It's not absolutism. It's kind of neither here nor there. It's an uneasy alliance. And it comes down to, I think, the fact that it's not a very good story for the people of France. They've just had Napoleon, who, for better or for worse, was a pretty exciting guy. The replacement doesn't really unify them in the same way. It might be actually better for them if they were really thinking about it, but it doesn't grip them in the same way. So that's the struggle of the vacuum left by somebody like Napoleon, is how do you, how do you replace that with something else that is going to galvanize people's imaginations and have them kind of rally around this new idea. What's the new idea that follows Napoleonism or Bonapartism? I like the parts of the book that deal with that day-to-day -day life. One of those is, to go back to a movie analogy, we look at the stormtroopers, right, in Star Wars, or we look at any of these little henchmen that are in the James Bond movies or anything like that, and you think, well, why would they? Why would those guys stick with them? You know, is there a great health plan there that Cobra Commander gives out to those guys that G.I. Joe is knocking out of their planes every week on the cartoon? Well, no, there must be. They're just there. They don't have no backstory. They're just along. And yet for Napoleon, he has guys around him that stick that will be with him. And that's despite the way you describe he likes to control others. He's he's going to make them be part of his story. They're going to fit the role. Sometimes people treat you like they don't even think you have a life when you're not on stage, when they're not there and they don't need you. you your character doesn't exist right now unless, unless something's happening that's center stage. He likes to alter the names of the women in his life. That's something that you write here in The Invisible Emperor. All that micromanaging, it would drive most people away from a boss, from a leader, from a general, from somebody commanding any small group, a Boy Scout troop, right? You said earlier, they're telling him, don't do this thing. Don't go back. Don't don't try to do this, Napoleon. And yet he says, well, I'm going to do it. And they follow him. What is it about him as a person that 
keeps people by his side while he's in exile on Elba, while he's living that day-to-day life that people will experience along with you here in the Invisible Emperor. Why don't they leave? Why do they decide, okay, this is him chasing windmills a little bit, that he's going to go back to Paris, but he's our guy. We're going to stick with him. How does he motivate them? Yeah, and I think your question there is a nice way to enter into another another talk about this approach to history, my, my particular way that I like to write history. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but just to say what I do that I think is different than, than some other approaches to Napoleon so far, is that I actually really care deeply about all these minor characters in his life, because I find them equally worthy of attention. I want to know exactly as you do, what, why, what are they getting out of it? So, and again, it's, it starts with the archives. I have a lowly valet. He's writing everything he sees, everything he hears. I want to know about Napoleon's second wife and the letters they're writing, which I don't say that that gets completely discounted in previous work, but I would say it's not necessarily the first question that a lot of biographers of of Napoleon are worried about his two wives, as aside from how they reflect his life. I really wanted to take her, this is Marie-Louise, his young second wife, I really wanted to know about her and, and actually see what's she thinking about this particular moment and how is it affecting her own trajectory, what she wants out of life? Why does the valet go along, as you say? What's he getting out of it? And again, we can do that with letters, with diaries, all the rest. And there's enough there that I think some of those secondary characters do get do get fleshed out in a way that we're, we're trying to see a bit of their motivation. And I guess the simple answer is, it is kind of like Cobra Commander's health care plan in a way, in a roundabout way, which is people are self-interested, right? What is going to be best for me? What is going to be best for my family? And I think what happens with Napoleon in exile is that you get a lot of people who are kind of satellite members of the empire, minor figures, who then, after everybody else jumps ship and says, you know, this is over, they say, well, you know, if I stick around and I actually go to this remote island, my life might actually get better because I might I might actually get to really be in the top tier of advisors. I might earn more more money. I might have more power. I might have more prestige, more honor. All of these things, you know, these are rational beings. Again, we have this disconnect where 200 years later, it sounds so bizarre to us, but these are people who are making rational, what seem to them to be rational decisions. If I do X, my life will be Y. And I think that gets to maybe part of, not the entire answer to why is Napoleon able to rally so many people to his cause, but I think there is that's the start of it, is that people are acting in their own best interests. They're not dumb, right? People are not as dumb as we sometimes think they are when it comes to following leaders. They really do think there's something there that, that appeals to them. This story is a good story for me. This person tells me something about my own life that I like to hear. The last thing that I'll say with, with Napoleon especially is what's great, why he is so important historically, I think, and without putting a value of better or for worse and saying he's a good guy or a bad guy. What I think he did that was so vital is he really introduced the idea that you could be born in a certain set of circumstances and completely reinvent your life and end up in a different set of circumstances, which is not really the case before he comes along. A sort of idea of a meritocracy, whether it's actually happens in practice or not is another question. But there is the idea that, hey, you can be born in Corsica, that it has nothing to do with France in terms of it's not Paris. 
I'm not, you know, in the lap of luxury or power, and you could become a Napoleon Bonaparte. That can happen in your own life in a certain smaller way. That idea is extremely attractive to people, even at the end when it's led to so much destruction following this guy, there's still that idea of the internal Bonaparte, the individual idea of me as a as a guy who sells fish, as I said, or drives a cart, you know? How can I be like a Napoleon? And that's exciting. That's something to kind of rally behind for better or for worse. You mentioned Marie Louise, the second wife. I just want to tell people quickly that you handle her very beautifully in the book. And that's the word that leaps to my mind for it, because you do find yourself pulling for it. At first, you think she's going to be this princess who she's going to be shipped off for politics to be married off to this man that she thinks is a, is a monster, has no desire to marry and be with. And then you describe their marriage or their courtship, really, the way that she and Napoleon learn about each other and the way that she comes around. And I won't give too much away on her, but there are so many things like that where now that you're telling me that you like to focus on the secondary characters with no disrespect for them, you know, they're, they stub their toe at her just as much as Napoleon. So they're not worthy of being skipped over. And it's nice to see that. That was a very different story than I would have expected from a duchess at the time, from a young princess at the time. And I enjoyed that you put that in the book. I'll limit myself to one final question because I've asked so many and left many unanswered, but I assure you all the answers are here in The Invisible Emperor, other than those about G.I. Joe and Cobra Commander, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I've made the case here for why people like myself who are fuzzy on the man behind the legend can pick up and enjoy The Invisible Emperor. Now I'd like you to make a pitch, not just to those folks, but also to readers who maybe have picked up some of those many hundreds of books on Napoleon and feel they know all they need to know about the great leader. Why should they pick up the Invisible Emperor and dive into these powerless months of his life that most other biographies just skip over? Oh, geez, that's a tough one. That's Okay, so let me start with this. I sometimes hear writers who say they never read their own reviews. And I think you know, I hesitate to call anyone a liar, but that to me just doesn't sound right. I mean, you worked so hard and so many years for this one project, this book. And then here's somebody who is makes a living reading, you know, and reviewing. That's their career. And they're a smart reader. And they're going to tell you what they think about your work. And you're going to ignore that. I don't buy it. I, I read my reviews and I enjoy them. I enjoy the good ones and the bad ones, actually, because the bad ones teach me something. And there was a lovely review that I just read from the Seattle Times. And it started out, she wrote, I think you could fit my interest in Napoleon Bonaparte into a thimble, something like that. (laughs) And I'm thinking, "Uh oh, this is going to be a tough review. And she proceeded to give this very thoughtful and and positive review about the book. And she actually named it one of her favorite nonfiction titles of the last year. And I was touched by that. And I think the reason that she gave was that it had transported her to this different time and it was a kind of ripping yarn in terms of there was a good plot and all the and suspense and all the rest, but that there really was this immersion. I, I'm, I hope I'm not speaking out of line by paraphrasing her, her review, but that she said she had been transported. And that to me was, I don't mean that to be self-serving. It's just that that to me, if I'm giving a pitch, is exactly my pitch. That was what exactly what I was trying to do when I set out, which was to give somebody who has no interest in Napoleon a reason to read a Napoleon book because it happens to be a damn good story and in, the, in and of itself with suspense and reversals and action and all the rest you want out of the story and that it will immerse you 
completely in a time that is totally different from your own. Then if we go to the, well, why does a Napoleon reader want to read that? It's because it's a Napoleon book that is totally unlike any other biography or Napoleon book you've ever read, because it is this totally weird sideways view into his life. So I hope there's enough there to satisfy the the non-initiate and the one who is a, a total Napoleon buff. Well, Mark Brody, author of The Invisible Emperor, I hope that other readers will be inspired by our chat to immerse themselves in those waters of the Mediterranean off Elba. Hop on that ferry from France to Elba here in The Invisible Emperor with all these great supporting characters who were very real people and were around Napoleon at this point where they could just reach out and literally touch him. Imagine having a coffee with Napoleon. I, mean, I, never, even, I never even thought of the guy before drinking coffee, although it would go very well with the pastry that bears his name. <laughs> <laughs> He's an approachable guy in your book. He's very human and driven, and that's a credit to your writing. I wish you the best of luck with this second book, and I hope that we'll get a third one out of you soon. And I promise that when we chat about that book, I will also try to wedge in 007 and various <laughs> other spy things now that I know you love prison escapes. I will be disappointed if you don't. <laughs> Seems like that would be perfect for us. Uh, I will work on it. Look forward to the next book. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure talking to you. Again, the book is The Invisible Emperor, Napoleon on Elba, From Exile to Escape. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or even navigate via the Amazon banner at the top of our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner takes you through to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar, franc, or euro you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. Thanks to Mark Brody for joining us, and for introducing everyone to one of history's greatest military leaders but during a time of defiance in defeat. Visit our guest at markbrody.com. That last name again is B-R-A-U-D-E. If you enjoyed hearing from Mark, visit our archives for our interview about his previous book, Making Monte Carlo, A History of Speculation and Spectacle. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean, facebook.com slash history author or on our instagram page at the history author show i posted a shot of mark's book on instagram i positioned it with a bottle of monkey shoulder blended malt scotch usually i have a little fun with those pictures and i try to pick a spirit that complements the book it was only afterwards that i realized i should have posted the invisible emperor with a bottle of bourbon as a nod to the plan to put a bourbon on the throne after Napoleon's reign. People seem to like those pictures, so who knows? Maybe next time, Napoleon. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Plus, you can check out some of those written Q&As that we've been having fun with over at HistoryAuthor.com. Until our next trip into the past together, 
Thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Here's another Napoleon. That's the 12th one today. But I am Napoleon! Sure you are. I will have you executed for this. <laughs> Imagine that guy thinking he's Napoleon when I really am.